welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus. We hope you enjoy these conversations on executive protection and security management as we meet with security practitioners and industry thought leaders. Welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. Today, uh, we are joined by Brian Bixler, uh, my former boss and a a law enforcement professional, and now somebody who has gone through the funnel from the public sector into the private sector. And uh, so we are very excited to have him with us today. So Brian, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you, Ron. Such an honor to uh, talk to somebody who I respect, not only as as a police officer, but just as as a man. And uh, kind of the way you you walk your walk is uh, you are one of those people with integrity who I really respect, and, and I'm honored to be here with you. Well, you know, usually on the podcast, we dive right into how people began their journey, but I want to peel it back even even further. Um, you started in law enforcement, you're in the private sector now, but where did you plan on being before law enforcement? Crazy story. When I, we all have those uh, stories of, you know, our lives thinking we're going to go one place and and then we end up somewhere completely different. Mine took lots of twists and turns. Started... Um, I wanted to run track in college. That was my my first kind of thing. And I ended up doing that. So I got a scholarship, ran track in college, and I wanted to go into sports medicine because I thought that sounded fascinating. And I thought I understood the human body. And I had a rude awakening when I failed chemistry and realized that my brain did not function in that, in that arena uh, to be able to pass those type of classes. Meanwhile, I was getting straight A's in my Bible class. Uh, I had a, went to a small private Christian school called Westmont College in Santa Barbara. And that stuff made sense to me. And um, I was involved in my church. And so I was like, well, if I can't pass chemistry and I'm getting straight A's in Bible, maybe I should change my major. So I decided I was going to become a youth pastor. And when I graduated, I did. I was a youth pastor in Santa Barbara. Then I moved to Seattle. And uh, when I was in Seattle, my wife and I realized very quickly that having grown up on the beach in Santa Barbara um, was not the same as living, uh, you know, in a small place in Seattle, uh, and not seeing the sun. So that led to a transition down back down to Southern California, where I thought I was going to be working at a church down there. And um, unfortunately, that fell through. And so I really had no idea. So I remember sitting at my parents' house going, I, oh my gosh, I've moved a couple of times, dragged my wife from you know, Santa Barbara to Seattle. And now, you know, we're back down when I have no idea what to do. And my brother and I were talking on the phone. He's like, well, I went and took the LAPD test last week. You should do it. And I was like, I, that has never even crossed my mind, except for the fact that my my father was a police officer um, way back in Orange County, back in the, um, the the 60s and 70s. And so I was like, well, whatever. So I drove down to North Hollywood Police Station when I think it was a Wednesday night, took the test. Uh, and four months later, I was standing on a black line getting yelled at by a guy in a Smokey Bear hat with my brother standing next to me as my classmate. And we were trying not to laugh. Um, so that started my, my career in law enforcement. And uh, had a blessed, I had so much fun. I mean, starting out as a probationer in, in Hollywood to working, you know, uh, Hollywood Vice gangs in South Los Angeles, a violent crime task force in the San Fernando Valley, becoming a tactical flight officer and air support division. Like just, I, I had the dream career. So the the journey to law enforcement was, was you know, interesting to say the least. And then uh, the transition out. I thought I was going to be still in law enforcement for another five years till I was uh, had 32 years on. And the opportunity to transition to the private sector um, popped up and I was not looking for it, was not planning on it, but it found me. So, and here I am. And here you are. Um, 
But again, let's let's snap back a little bit to that beginning stage of of your time with the LAPD. Um, again, sure. At the time that you started uh, being selected in to that profession, specifically that department, was a difficult task. I mean, today they're pushing to try to find candidates. Back then, they're pushing away candidates, and you were really lucky to have your number pulled. Not just your number, but at the same time as your brother. Yeah. And uh, I can imagine it's. It's something that's pretty atypical to have siblings in the same class. It is. At the time, they they couldn't recall ever having siblings in the same class. And it was, my brother actually had been selected um, to start the academy prior to, to me, but um, he was taking the bar because he was just finished law school. And he's like, no, I want to postpone it. So they let him postpone it. And he just happened to finish up the bar process. And we just, I don't know if they planned it, but we ended up in the same class, which was, yeah, like you said, very unusual. And it led to just a lot of fun. My wife. Uh, every Sunday night, my brother would come over to my apartment and my wife would shave both our heads. Um, we'd kind of review the week and uh, he ended up being the class um, leader. I was a class president and we really just had a blast. It was, it was um, a lot of people struggled in the academy. I was, we, we had a lot of fun um, and it just wasn't that big of a struggle. But yeah, getting selected was, um, to me, I really didn't know much about the process. So I didn't know it was hard to do so. But um, I think my brother and I both had a, a unique skill set. We were not, I was 26. So I wasn't like some a young 21-year-old who had no life experience. I was married. I'd had, you know, two jobs already of, of kind of significance. So it was like, you know, I, I didn't think it was hard to get in. I just did it and ended up standing on that black line one day going, what in the world just happened to my life? Uh, and that was, that was fun. You know, um, you said you and your brother had a lot of fun. And uh, academies can be particularly stressful. They're supposed to be the whole stress inoculation components and right. getting up early, going to bed late, all that sleep deprivation that's involved. Um, you said you had a ton of fun. And so yeah. obviously your background isn't one that people would really pick out of a, a needle out of the haystack and say, hey, this is going to be somebody that is particularly successful. When you look at you know previous experience, a lot of military guys, et cetera. Yeah. Um, what do you think prepared you uniquely with your background going into this uh, profession? Um, great question. One, we'll just start with the physical part. Uh, my Both my brother and I were, were college athletes. So I think that all right, ready right there, like all the running and the, the PT is like, that was my job. I, I, I was an athlete. And, I, and so I had to, so that, that kind of made that piece easy and not as stressful. Um, but the other piece I think was dealing with people. As, as a pastor, I dealt with people generally is like, oh, what, what do you do? Like I dealt with people in the lowest point of their lives. I had parents bring, hey, my son's struggling with, you name, you name what they're struggling with. Um, dealing with teenagers at various parts in their life and learning how to deal with people. And because that's as law enforcement, 99.99% of what we did was not, you know, wasn't running and gunning. It was see the man, see the woman, knock on a door. We're having problems with our kid. I'm having a domestic struggle. Like, it was all of that stuff. Um to be able to deal with those radio calls. But the other piece was to deal with what I think later in my career was dealing with my people that worked with me and for me um, was to engage them at a very human level. Um, and I think those skill sets of having that ability to, to be an empathetic listener, to have a true open door policy, I thought where I, my door, if, if you wanted to come in and talk about, you know, my girlfriend and I are fighting or I'm having marital problems or you name it, I'm having a substance abuse issue. I felt like my, my, training and background as a pastor made me uniquely suited to do that job in law enforcement, which like, like, you know, like that's a lot of our job is just talking to people. Yeah. You know, you'd be surprised uh, if you just watch any of the law enforcement shows on TV and, and they show all the, 
the cool high adrenaline stress type of stuff. And then you get into uh, the profession and you realize those are snippets yes. of a culmination of an incident that usually starts off pretty boring or has moments of boredom or moments of slowdown. And even your days, you know, you're not doing stuff every moment of every day, but you are interacting with people every moment of every day, yeah. whether it's externally or internally, especially in your role, dealing with personnel and yeah. personnel issues, ups, downs, and otherwise um, throughout people's career. Um, so before we get to the part where you and I kind of, uh, our paths collided with each other, um, let's talk a little bit about the fact that you really were a private sector household name in the threat management capacity and the behavioral threat component, yeah. um, where again, paths kind of just kind of divert and go wherever. And uh, was threat management and the behavioral threat assessment component of law enforcement something that you saw and you wanted to be a part of, or were you kind of thrown into that world? Um, yeah, totally had no idea it even existed. I was a watch commander, a, a lieutenant watch commander in Foothill Division loved what I was doing, working morning watch, which is for us was, you know, the wee hours of the morning. So like, I think I started at six at night and ended at six in the morning and um, loved that job. And out of the blue, one of my friends, Mike Moreland, uh, who has since retired, uh, he was a detective three in charge of the mental evaluation unit. And Jesse Garcia, who used to be a, a SWAT operator and then ended up at the mental evaluation unit. They both called me out of the blue one day and said, hey, Bix, what's going on? I was like, hey guys, what's going on? Um, and they said, well, uh, you need to apply for the lieutenant position at where we are. And I said, well, where are you guys? And they said, we're the, at the mental evaluation unit or crisis response support section. And I said, what's that? <laughs> and and uh, so they started to tell me and I'm like, guys, it's just, I don't want to go to the building. I, I love it out here. I love being in uniform. I love being out with the men and women who are out there doing, you know, God's work every night. And they said, well, we're doing the same thing. So I decided, you know what? Um, well, actually, they pulled they pulled the thing you you can pull on a pastor sometimes is they were like, hey, but, you know, Jesse and I've been praying about it. And we really feel like God's calling you. And I'm like, you cannot do that. That's not even fair. <laughs> but so I went down and kind of looked and visited them one day. And I thought, I had no idea this even existed. And I met the guys from the threat management unit, Jeff Dunn, who was one of the first people I met down there. And I was like, wait, what do you guys do? And um, so I, I got intrigued by that. I met the captain that day who was in charge, Kelly Meldorfer. And she said, I'd really like you to apply for the position. I said, oh, where, when are the interviews? She said, tomorrow. And I said, oh, I know nothing about the unit. Like, it's going to take me a while to prepare. And she goes, you'll be fine. <laughs> and I think she just knew that I was the right guy for that spot. And so I uh, jumped into that world. And uh, after meeting Charles Dempsey, who was one of my mentors, and Jeff Dunn, and, and um, the guys working there, I was like, this is something special. And I started looking at the behavioral threat assessment and management piece of, of looking at people who, um, not just stalkers, but workplace violence and these other things, uh, active shooters, how can we get in front of them? How can we locate them, um, identify them and manage them without it leading to violence? And I realized that most of the cases of the threat management unit, they never got to that place of, of acting out in violence. They were able to manage these people through several aspects of that unit, which was the mental evaluation unit, which is an officer and a clinician working together to go respond to calls, uh, camp, the case assessment management program, which was the detective side, and then threat management, you sat in the middle and they would pick one of their persons of interest and say, you know, this is a this is a really good fit for our clinicians on the camp side of the house. So I learned very quickly and wanted to become an expert because I realized this was a, an area of policing that I didn't know existed um, and realized that a lot of the places in the country and the world didn't have this asset. And so I made myself an expert. I read everything I could. I started going to every conference I could. 
And then I just put in and said, I'm going to start speaking on this stuff because that's the way I learn is by doing it. So if I'm going to speak on something, I became an ex- expert in it. And it led to the path where I was able to go to Italy. Um, I spoke at a conference recently in Vienna. Like it, it took me to places I never thought I would be. And I learned so much about the, the work that people don't see. They see the black and whites on the street, but they don't see that softer work that is done behind the scenes with people struggling with mental health issues or people who are you know, fixated on a, on a celebrity or a politician. And what do you do with that person? And how do you, how do you off-ramp them or derail them for, from the path, pathway to violence? And that's what I learned how to do. And it was been an amazing journey. Yeah. And certainly, you know, in the terms of leaving something better than you found it, um, you have a history of walking into places and leaving them better than you found it. Everyone that I've talked to that's worked with you says the same thing. But specific to the Behavioral Threat Assessment Unit and TMU and MEU, where was it at when you entered it? Because when you left, it was a national platform of what to do and how to do it. You know, I, I think um, the Threat Management Unit started It was started long ago um, after Rebecca Schaefer was murdered, uh, one, kind of the, one of the first stalking murders that was got some fame. Um, so they'd been around for a long time. That was 1992 or 93. So that that unit was was doing pretty well. The the mental evaluation unit side, honestly, it was was an incredible unit when I got there. But it was also a place where people sent, um, I don't know. Sometimes they call it the island of misfit toys, <laughs> where well that person didn't fit in that patrol division, and let's put them over there. And it became kind of like a um, I don't know, like it was we'll we'll handle a call when we get there. And when I got there, and I realized the good they could do, because an average patrol unit would take a, a fifty one fifty straight 5150 and could take them three, four, five hours to just get that person from one place to another. And this unit, I realized, had the ability through the the, um, partnership with LA County Department of Mental Health to put them not just in a county facility, but find private places. It sped up the process and we didn't have the same recidivism of those people just going into the county hospital, getting out several hours later and having the same radio call generated. So I think with the help of Mike Moreland and Jesse and people like that, who were like, they, they saw it as well. They were like, this can be so much more. And um, we started pushing that. Like, look, we're going to have standards. If a patrol unit is handling a 5150 call and you're available and you're not handling it, you're not doing your job, you should leave. Go find something else to do. And I remember I stood there in front of roll call one day and I was like, look, we're not going to do the, the thing the same way we used to because you guys are really good at what you do. But if you decide just, you're just, eh, you're going to take one call a day, which there was a point when that's what was happening then I don't need you here. I'll find somebody else who can do this. And so that was kind of the the, the motivation for doing that. And I think right then it was there was political impetus to, to expand as well. So actually we doubled the size of the unit. Um, even before I got there, we were a national learning site through the Department of Justice, but we became like 10 times that where we were traveling all over the country. We had We had agencies coming to us probably once a month to spend a week with us to see how we did what we did. And I think it was simply... I pointed out to them the good work they were doing and said, look in a mirror and realize you're the best in the world and you can be better. And I think that was kind of the, the thing that that was always my mantra wherever I went was like an LAPD. I always thought like, dude, we're the best in the world and we can be better. And I think that was what I tried to do, I think, wherever I went, because I thought the same thing of me. Like I, I, I thought I was competent at what I did, but I knew I could always be better. And I think that's in private and in public, like, it's the same thing. Um, you sit and decide, yeah, I'm good where I am. You stagnate and you die. But I think it's always pushing to do better. And I think that's where MEU, um, and it's still like, I love the team that we developed when I was there. 
those, those leaders are still in place and they're still doing a fantastic job at pushing the envelope every day. Yeah. I mean, you talk about leadership and pushing your team and, and that's a great message right there. Even though we are at the top of the pile, how do we stay that way? Yeah. And not just to stay on top of the pile for staying on top of the pile's sake, but how do we continue to provide a better service to the community, to the profession? And you really instigated that and, and led a team that is still doing that to this day. Yeah. I remember when I, just to go back, when I first got there and, and I was, some of the people who were there before me, I asked them, I said, Hey, so who else have you gone to study to learn this work? They go, no, everybody comes to us. And I go, well, I get that, but I guarantee there's agencies out there that are probably doing really good work. They may be small. Um, and they're like, yeah, but we're the LAPD, but they come to us. And I was like, oh, wow. So I made it, I made it a point of mine to go find the smaller agencies that were doing this work really well. And I went and visited them and said, and I, every time I went somewhere, I, even if it wasn't a big thing, sure. They may, we may have been doing really good on other things, but I could find one little nugget and go that I'm taking back. And so that's what I was able to do is kind of bring some of those things back and change the attitude of, yeah, we're number one. But if, like you said, if you think you're number one, you won't remain that way because somebody else is pushing Absolutely. And I think that's an incredible perspective because we get certainly at, at the LAPD, you get into that, you know, comfortability of the apparatus. Yeah. And there's always this big bubble around you of resource um, that others just don't have the luxury of, of getting um, or having access to. And uh, I'm sure, you know, your experience is the same as mine, just a constant amazement of what people can do when they are, you know, not so resource rich. Yes. And how they make things happen with the people they have, the resources they have, and a lot of ingenuity comes out of that. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that's what you found traveling around to these smaller agencies. Absolutely. They had to be creative. They were like, well, we don't have a, a LA County Department of Mental Health. I don't have a clinician writing with me. I've got to figure it out. So I with so somebody on FaceTime, a clinician on FaceTime, I go, here, here's, here's my subject. He's in the back of my police car. Can you talk to him? Like they started doing that. And that actually led to a program where they had iPads and they could do that in a rural setting because- they didn't have what we had. And it also took like an hour to get to a radio call because it was in the middle of nowhere. So yeah, for sure. And with that, um, you're familiar with the term. Most people on the podcast will be, but you could have taken that position and, and done what we call riding it out mm. and just rode that spot out to the sunset. <laughs> um, but you didn't. You continued to impact not just different places, but the department as a whole. Mm. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're... Your next stop, and certainly where we met up, was you ended up taking the captain's test. I did. Promoting. Yep. And circling right back to where you started. Yes. Back at Hollywood. Yeah. So talk about kind of the perspective shift of circling all the way back to where you started your career. Uh, it's, it's It was such a cool moment. I remember when Chief Moore called me and said, hey, Brian, um, I've held you back long enough. Congratulations. You're new patrol commanding officer at Hollywood. And I went, my jaw dropped, tears in my eyes. Um, called my wife first, um, and then the, and my brother and my family, and I was like, "Wow, this is just amazing!" And I went when I drove back to Hollywood. It hadn't changed. It looked exactly the same. The smells were this. Everything came back. You know, I remember that first night when I when I when I went into roll call there, and then I got to go back up. Roll call room had changed significantly because it was really pretty now. Back then, it was kind of ugly. But um, what was wild is one of the training officers I had as a P one. I was now his boss. And he was still there. He was, uh, I think, six months from retirement when I got there as a captain. But it was amazing to come back and see that um, this is where I started. And uh, it was an honor to be in leadership because I had great leaders when I was there. And now to be one of those, it was humbling and such an honor to, to be in that place. I mean, Hollywood Division is 
that was the, where I dreamed of working when I got on the LAPD. It's like, oh, if I could only work Hollywood, and I got it, and I, I worked there three times. So yeah, it was it was it was pretty pretty special time. Certainly, and uh, probably unbeknownst to you, your name came up in my sphere a year prior when I was on probation myself. And uh, really, I was talking with Brian Flannery, who now is your boss. Yep. And uh, over at Foresight, and uh, he was telling me about this guy named also Brian. And uh, just was raving about you. And I'm sitting there going, I don't know who this is. I've never heard of the places that he's working at. Um, I'm just getting started here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, fast forward another year and I get there and I'm going, wait a minute, this name sounds familiar. And so I think I asked you, this is my first interaction. You walked into the room and for those who know, and for those who don't, um, the captains, if they walk into a room and you're doing a bunch of patrol stuff in your report writing room or chatting it up, it's typical for there to be silence right at the breath <laughs> or the first notice of a captain walking in. And that's what happened with my first my first interaction with you was the place froze up and none of us expected, we weren't sure what to expect, sure. quite honestly. And you jumped right in there and just started talking to everybody, wanted to get to know people. And by the time you made it around to me, I think I asked you something like, do you know Brian Flannery? And you're like, yeah, I know Brian. How do you know Brian? And we had this quick conversation. And by the end of it, which maybe lasted 30 seconds to a minute, you said, let's take a picture and send it to Brian. And I'm thinking, this is my patrol captain. He was not acting very much like a patrol captain, but everybody in the room was so disarmed. And here I am taking a picture with you and sending it off to Brian Flannery. Yeah. And that sparked a whole set of other events and correspondence and stuff. Yeah. Um, but really, that moment, we knew we have somebody who's not just going to look out for our best interests, but also, like you said earlier, have that open door policy, care about the person, not just the professional. Mm -hmm. And uh, you live that out during your entire time where you were my boss. Thank you. And uh, But let's talk about that. You know, you're at one of the busiest divisions. Yeah. And now you're back in a unique leadership role where people who have trained you how to be a police officer, now you're over them in a management aspect. Yeah. How was that? How did you utilize the unique aspect of that to be a productive leader? Well, um, one is um, I realized quickly some of the things I didn't know. Um, I had never been uh, really uh, in an administrative position. MEU was very different administrative. Um, so there was a lot of things I didn't know as a patrol, as a captain. And luckily I had uh, Steve Lurie, who was the captain three, who's now a commander, who, uh, one of the sharpest minds in the LAPD, I would say probably, yeah, I'd put him up there with anyone in our organization as far as uh, a sharp mind. But beyond that, he's just a, a good leader. And so I was like, hey, I, I you know, I want to learn. So for me, it was it was kind of coming and going. I, there's some things I think I did naturally that my 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 energy, my enthusiasm is one thing. But now to to focus that, uh, I needed somebody like Steve to kind of like you know sand off the the, the rough edges uh, of who I was and and as a leader, but yeah, having people like like Greg Chin, who who was um, one of those P threes, uh, who was the first week I was on probation. I remember I didn't work with Greg, but he was part of that group and went to the second roll call at the Seven Eleven and had a cup of coffee. And I would just listen to him. And now I'm seeing him. What was amazing is that he was doing the exact same level of work right before he retired, like taking a P one and going, okay, we're going to do vehicle searches before we go out, like. He could have done this, like you said, sat on his butt and and just um, thirty year P three in Hollywood. I'm the senior P three. I like do whatever I wanted, but he was so passionate about teaching. So I think by watching people like him and going that that's it. That is that is like you said. Don't don't just write it out, but 
that get better. So I think I used people like Greg and and other people that had been there a long time to to make sure one that I was honoring their profession and their sacrifice by learning from them, uh, and then learning from somebody like Steve who I didn't know and just um, being able to to sit down and hear from his perspective of how to be a better leader. And I, like I said, I think that was part of it was realizing I didn't have all the answers. Um, yeah, I'd been in the organization a long time. I'd done a lot of things, but there was a lot of things I didn't know um, and better ways to do things. And I think that's, you know, after after that long in the organization, you think, oh yeah, you're, you're set in what you're going to do. But I think I learned and got better because of those people. Yeah. And both of you guys were leading at an explicitly a challenging time, um, both internally and externally. But, um, you know, when the house feels on fire and, and everybody's working in a division where there's two locked on leaders, um, you feel like you're in this protective bubble. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you talk about a unique experience. I know Hollywood, the golden era of Hollywood was about 1930s to the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, but the golden era of Hollywood division mm-hmm. was really the, the, the Bixler and Lurie era. Yeah. And uh, people talk about it still to this day. Um, I don't know that there will be another duo um, like that at a divisional level. So really, uh, wow. those of us who experience that take it with a lot of appreciation um, to have lived that out. I know I do. And, and a lot of uh, a lot of the guys I work with do. No, thanks, Ron. I mean, that means a lot. It was, it was a special time. It was good stuff. It was, a, it was a special time for sure. But to your motto, you didn't stop there. Yeah. Uh, right when we got comfortable with you, <laughs> um, you got sucked up somewhere else. And, and so um, I saw... Everyone was getting the phone calls because it all happened at the same time. But Steve got called. He's getting, you know, uh, promoted to commander. And all these other people were moving. And, and Steve's like, Brian, where, where are you going? I'm like, I, I don't know. Because nobody called you yet? And I go, no. Uh, and then somebody sent me the list. And it showed me going to DSVD as a captain, too. And I went, that's where I just came from. That's, that wasn't in the plans at all. And then um, and, uh, Steve, Steve called me. He goes, still nobody's called you? And I'm like, because in our... If when you make command staff, that it, it's a call, not a piece of paper. Like somebody calls and says, Hey, you're going to be on my team now. Um, somebody dropped the ball. So another command staff officer called me from higher up and said, I am so sorry. Uh, nobody called you, Brian. You're going to go back to DSVD. Uh, and then I, uh, I honestly, I was, I was a little bumped because I was like, I, I love those people, but I left a year ago and there's more that I want to do. Um, and so uh, I met with, I think it was the assistant chief at the time, Rob Marino. And uh, he's like, so what do you think? And I go, well, honestly, I'm a little surprised that I'm back there. He goes, don't worry. It's not for long. And I'm like, oh, that would have been nice to know. <laughs> I said, but I will do my best job. So I was there for like, I think, four months. And then um, I remember sitting down with Rob Marino again and kind of a little coaching session. And he goes, so if you get go anywhere in the organization, where would it be? And I said, sir, I've had probably the best career anybody's ever had. I, I've gotten to do so much, but there's one place that I've tried to go before that I didn't get to go. And he goes, where's that? And I said, Metropolitan Division. And he goes, well, that's good because that's where you're going. And I was like, <laughs> so um, needless to say that, that where, you know, a lot of the 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 people who really just want to do that good tactical work, SWAT, canine, um, you know, the, the, the line platoons and um, uh, all those amazing things, like that's where I got to go. And so, to be there with some of my classmates who were there as canine and a SWAT and to be with the people that I've looked at uh, who showed up on those calls. And I knew were the kind of the, the, the tip of the spear patrol is the tip of the spear, but these are the guys that come in when patrol needs to call 911. And so um, what an honor 
to be able to work with men and women of that caliber, uh, to be able to be their leader, to be able to be called our commander, which was my call sign. Um, it was, uh, I was, I don't know I mean, what, how to say it, but it was like heaven for me. It was, it was amazing. So it was just a really cool transition. And, and my time there was shorter than I thought it would be, but that was, you know, because of the next chapter in my life. Absolutely. And before we get to that next chapter, go ahead. And, and for those who are semi-familiar or even unfamiliar, when you say Metro, you know, everybody thinks about SWAT. Sure. And you've got the LAPD SWAT, which is world renowned. Yep. Um, probably the best of what they do in that vein. Absolutely. Um, but you, that is one element of Metro. And so can you build out yeah. the full umbrella that you were responsible for? Absolutely. So you talked about SWAT. So yeah, that was, everybody knows kind of what SWAT does. So we also had a full-time canine unit and uh, those guys, I tell you what, and gals, the, the work they did every day um, was amazing. They were always out. And, you know, anytime that somebody runs from the police, which happens all the time in LA, as you know, um, or, you know, ran after a crime, those dogs and those men and women go in there and put themselves in harm's way um, all the time. And they did incredible work. So K-9 was a piece of it. Then we also have, some people know, some people don't know, we have a full-time mounted unit with horses. And they go out and work patrol five days a week. Well, they will go to a high crime area and they get on their horses and they do police work from their horseback. And one of the things that people don't know is whenever there's uh, like a high crime area and they'll say, hey, we need you to go into central division between these streets. We had some street robberies. Wherever the horses go, crime disappears. Um, bad guys look and they go, Police officer on a horse? No, I don't want to have any part of that. Um, and the other piece, big piece they they do is during crowd control, they show up and you've got, you know, a thousand pound animal coming at you. Protesters don't like that so much. So we use them uh, in that vein. We also had two platoons of, called line platoons. They used to do crime suppression, um, but that kind of stopped. And so uh, they were going out and they'd go to a divisional detective and say, hey, who are you looking for? We'll go find them for you. And so they did that. And then they also did part of our dignitary protection. So whenever the vice president or president is in town, the line platoons are the ones that work with the uh, United States Secret Service to make sure that the president and vice president safe. And now that our current vice president lives in the city of Los Angeles, and she's here all the time, um, there's a lot of time those officers spend, uh, you know, working 12 on 12 off, just making sure the vice president is safe. Um, so that's another piece. We also have crime impact team, which is uh, an uh, ATF or alcohol, tobacco, firearms and explosives federal task force. And they go after, you know, the worst of the worst. They do undercover uh, gun buys, drug buys, uh, and they work that side. And they're amazing at what they do. Jarrett Severance, who's the, the sergeant in charge over there, is, just does incredible work. Um, we also have the maritime operations team, which is, consists of the boat team, um, our boat unit, the underwater dive team. And we also have a um, metal detection unit. So they go out and they will dive for bodies, for evidence. Um, they also will do patrolling of the ports. They do special events. They also act as transport for SWAT when we need that to happen. Um, and then we have a whole training staff that does training. As you know, like we'll bring in Hollywood Division and, and Metropolitan Division. We'll train them at a higher level in, in firearms and tactics. Um, and I think I think I didn't miss anybody. I think that's that was Metropolitan Division. It's a lot. Uh, a heck of a lot of fun. From a leadership perspective, going over there, you know, it has its own culture. And sure. uh, it is apart from the LAPD culture, it is a whole nother level to that. Yeah. Going in there as a captain, what was that like? And uh, assimilating into to kind of a very set historical culture. 
one thing I think I had some unique maybe background that helped me. One is I was a firearms instructor. So a lot of those guys actually went through my firearms classes. So I was their primary rifle instructor or I was their primary firearms instructor in the academy. So they knew my ability with a firearm. It wasn't like, you know, a lot of captains, firearms are a necessary piece of equipment, but they're not a piece of who they are. For me, it was a piece of who I was. Like I loved teaching firearms. I loved being able to teach people to martial arts with a, with a weapon. And that was what it was to me. It was, it was a fighting art. It wasn't marksmanship. It was how do you fight with a firearm? And I, and I, and you know, I had never been an OAS, but I dedicated myself to making sure that those who might be someday were really good at what they did. And so going into to Metropolitan Division, having that background already kind of set me like, okay, he, he's got that piece. Um, and then the other piece was I, I went to um, Lorraine, who is the secretary and she'd been there forever. She's amazing. Uh, and I said, can you do me a favor? And I want to make an appointment with every sergeant uh, in the division and every lieutenant in the division. She goes, what do you mean? I go, well, I want on a schedule, like maybe two or three a week to meet for an hour. And she goes, but why? And I said, because I want to know who they are. And so one of the sergeants who'd been there for, you know, in SWAT for a long time sat down, sir, um, is everything okay? I'm like, yeah, tell me about your family. Because it was so big. And so I, I think that that right there was how I, I think, got to that level of, yeah, we're so ingrained, but I want to know you as a person. Yeah, I know, I know your abilities out there, but like I said, I, I want to know you as a human being. Um, and to me, that broke down a lot of those barriers that might have been there. I had uh, made sure I had a meeting with all of my supervisors um, to have like a supervisor's meeting. And um, but I didn't do the normal thing. Like my, my partner looked at me like, what are you doing? Because I used to be a youth pastor. So I did crab breakers and I did like games. I had them play games and it was basically um, they got in groups of five and they basically said, OK, um, they all ran around and told weird stories about themselves. And they decided they they picked one um, to share with the rest of the group to see if the rest of the group could figure out who that was. So it was kind of like this. They, they And they ended up just giggling and laughing and we were playing games. But I was getting to know them and building that camaraderie. So I think those were some of the things that maybe I did that was very different than what had been done before. At the same time, like when I went out and we were in a crowd control situation and I had my squads of officers ready to their helmeted up, shields down. Metropolitan Division was ready to roll and mount up in the Suburbans and go take care of um, the city being torn apart. I went and I, and I just walked by every man and woman in that line and said, thank you for what you're doing. I patted them on the back. I literally just patted them all on the back um, and said, hey, you know, be safe out there. I'm with you. And then stood at the front of that line and, and went, went down range with them. And that to me came back to me later, like, dude, you have no idea what that meant to those men and women. Um, and so I think some of those things were the ways that I think um, some of them were planned, some of them were not planned. Um, but that, those are some of the things that I think helped put me in the place where I was able to be an effective leader in that organization. Absolutely. And and again, that's not isolated to that time uh, with your time at Metro uh, leading from the front and having that wherewithal. And you were doing that. That's just for those who know you, that's you, you know, that's, doesn't matter where you go. Um, you know, you, you have a reputation of still being the same person that you were when you got hired, which as you know, people change over time, <laughs> good, bad, or ugly, but, uh, but you, you still have a lot of respect, um, in that vein. And now that you've crossed over your, your name still talked about, um, I mean, I remember hearing stories even within Hollywood of, uh, guys putting out backups and being sh absolutely shocked at the first person who showed up at scene yeah. was the captain throwing on a, a duty belt yeah. and asking, all right, what do you need? What do you have? Which is not the typical thing. Um, 
so I mean, a lot of experience in, and uh, and you took that with you all the way through the ranks. Um, before we get to your post LAPD life, um, yeah, you know, I do want to to talk to you about incidents that go sideways and uh, and handling that. And certainly, both you and I um, were working when, or you at least got the phone call yeah. um, about an incident that involved your canine officers. And uh, I remember hearing that go out over the air uh, when I was at Hollywood at the time and. Everybody in the world, and so you know, wants to go and be there. And uh, it, it's uh, it's tough for supervision to understand that if you have the whole world show up uh, when unneeded, yeah. uh, it just becomes very difficult to manage at that scene. So um, I had to sit by and listen by radio, but you actually responded to the scene. Um, provide a little background onto, uh, onto this incident and then what it meant for you and how you handled this. Sure. Um... So I was uh, actually, I had taken some time off because uh, we had a house fire um, last, I think it was last February. Yeah, a year ago. And um, so we were out of our house and it was just super difficult to watch my wife try and handle all the insurance stuff and everything at home by herself while I was managing Metropolitan Division. And I was like, you know what? I need to practice what I preach. And I tell our guys, if you need time off, you you have to ask for it. And so I said, hey, hey boss, I I actually need to, to completely disconnect for just a week so I can figure out how to get my wife, my life back kind of in some semblance of where she's not, you know, treading water by herself. So I, I took that time off and uh, we were staying at a hotel because we hadn't found a permanent place to live yet. We didn't know when we were going to back into our house, which we're still not. Um, and so we were sitting at the embassy suites. And if you know the embassy suites, uh, they have a happy hour. So I was uh, enjoying a few adult beverages at the time. And, um, and my partner called and I looked at my phone and my wife looked at me and she goes, you know, you're on like a break. And I go, my partner would not call me if it was not serious. And I need to answer this call. So I picked up the phone he, and he simply said, Brian, three canine officers have been shot. One of them, is Steve, I'm heading to the scene. I'll call you later. Uh, I knew immediately Steve, Steve Wills was one of my classmates, uh, a good friend. And that's all the information I had. And I realized I'm in no position to drive. So I called my brother, who was a lieutenant um, with GMD and, and the LAPD. And I said, told him what had happened. He goes, I know I'm in route. Um, he said, but one of my detectives is is, is going to come pick you up. Where are you? So one of his detectives came, grabbed me from the hotel. Uh, I went immediately to the hospital because the I guess the, the scene, um, my partner was there at the command post. I didn't need to be there. So I went to the hospital and uh, yeah, it was hard to see people, you know, and love, um, with bullet holes in them. Um, you know, thank the Lord that they were all, um, recovered. Steve's back to work. Um, but that was hard one because I was dealing with crap of my own, like we all have, but then to now, okay, how do you lead an organization? Cause they're all looking for you for leadership. And then as you probably know, so I'll tell the story a little bit, these, um, Newton division officers were looking for a suspect wanted for extortion, um, he was just kind of a gangster in the area that was causing problems. Even his family was like, yes, please come pick him up. Um, so the Newton officer saw him walking down a street and then he realized that he was kind of running from them. So they set up a perimeter like they're supposed to do. Canine came in, did a search like they're supposed to do. And, uh, they located this guy hiding in a converted garage, broken stucco, uh, a broken drywall everywhere. They could sort of see him sort of not. Um, he was laying on a bed, didn't look like there was any firearms, no indication that he had firearms with him. Um, and so the canine unit, after the dog found him, they decided they're going to throw gas in there to get him to come out because he just wasn't coming out and they could, they knew he could hear him. They tried 
to use less lethal against the wall, just kind of scare them to come out. Didn't happen. And so they threw gas. Uh, and as they're getting ready to throw their second volley of gas, he pops up with a gun um, and starts firing from like five to seven feet away at the officers. Um, a hellacious gun battle ensued. Three officers were shot almost instantly. Um, and then the suspect ended up um, being deceased after that event. But I don't think it's ever happened that three officers were shot like that. Um, and that was the first time that ever happened. So just being there and then walking through after that, all of the second guessing, well, your guys should have done this or they should have done that or this was bad. I'm like, And that was instant. Instead of being like, hey, let's just take care of them right now and we're going to deal with the aftermath. Because, yeah, we're all, we're, we're going to critically think, how could we have done better? But it, it was really bad. Um, and so walking through that and trying to make sure you're protecting your officers, but also making sure they're holding them to account if they needed to be. Um, that was a rough time, but it was again, relationships. And I, I dropped the ball on numerous counts. It was sometimes when one of the officers was like, Hey, you haven't called me in like two weeks. I have no idea what's going on. Um, you know, and I was like, Oh my gosh, I dropped the ball. So there was things I learned about leadership even then of being able to communicate better. And there's so many things I could have done better during that time. And one of the other things that was like in the back of my mind is I had already made the decision to leave uh, and transition out of. And so that was like, suddenly, oh, crap, did I make the wrong decision? I need to stay. I need to stay with these officers to walk them through this. Uh, and realizing that very quickly, we can get in that that savior complex. And I had to realize, like, I'm not their savior. I can be a good leader where I'm at, but um, I'm not the everything to everyone. Uh, and that that was a hard realization, but a good one. Because I think as leaders, sometimes we think we have to do everything and we can do everything and we just can't. Yeah, that's important. And uh, for those who weren't at your retirement party, um, as somebody who went to it, you would have thought you spent your whole career in Metro. Mm. And the uh, the amount of sincerity that came out of the uh, the members there as they uh, bid you farewell into the the uh, retirement world, which, as you know, turned into be the private sector work world. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but you would have thought you, you spent your whole time there. Mm. And, uh, and I think people would be surprised to know that you were there for just a short bit. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so you decided to make that transition. Yes. And, uh, talk to me a little bit about this cause it's a unique story. Usually you hear about people sure. making that decision or taking three to five years to prep or doing a lot of work on their end. Yeah. What was your experience? So, um, you know, when I decided to enter drop and Kind of my wife and I were looking at, okay, I want to be, you know, 32 years seems about right for what I wanted to do. So I was about actually six years from that. Um, but I was at a conference, the threat management conference in Anaheim. And I can't remember what year it was. I'm sure Brian knows, but um, I think I was speaking and Brian Flannery was speaking. And um, I was on my safety team at church, which is basically just a bunch of off-duty cops who were just watching out for things. And I saw on the on the syllabus, on the agenda that there was... This guy, Brian Flannery, was talking about protecting houses of worship, and he was doing a dual presentation with one of the pastors from his church. And I thought, wow, this would be fascinating to listen to. And I went in there and listened to Brian speak, and I'm like, oh, this is totally a man. This is a brother. Like, he's a man after my own heart, former law enforcement, um, a guy who's, you know, a man of faith. And But he gets, like, he spoke differently than a lot of people. I'm like, he gets it. So I went up and talked to him afterwards. And then he saw me speak and then we just started kind of hitting up a friendship and we talked. And then um, at the ATAP winter conference in Florida, and we were at the airport and we we're having a very hot cup of coffee from Dunkin' Donuts. I remember that. And we were sharing, burying each other's souls because we just became soulmates kind of. And, and uh, he was talking to me about the fact that he had left 
uh, law enforcement and started his own company. And it was getting very, very busy and it was hard to do. And and he was really looking for somebody to help him lead that company, uh, COO, vice president type. And so I was like, well, who, like, what kind of person are you looking for? Kind of, I know a lot of people. And maybe I can point some people your way. He goes, no, I've already found the guy. I'm like, oh, really? Who's that? He's like, well, it's you. And I'm like, ah, good luck with that. I, and I had just gotten the job at Metro. I'm like, I am the happiest man in the world. I have the best job in the world. I'm going to ride that. I'm going to ride this job out. I'm going to be here for another five years. And so he said, okay. So I told my wife about it when I got back. And then we just kind of talked to um, Brian Moore and had a few meetings with him and his wife, amazing wife, Liz. And then he kind of officially offered me the job. And uh, my wife and I were like, well, I don't think we're ready yet. And so he's like, okay, okay. Uh, and then he happened to be coming down with Matt, one of uh, our directors. Uh, and I said, hey, if you ever come down, I'll take you to the, the, the Metro shooting range. We can go shooting. So I took him out there and we brought out all the toys. Um, but about that time, my wife and I were kind of just thinking about quality of life. My daughter had moved to Oregon, got married, is living there. Um, it had been about, you know, 25 years since I had had a, a weekend or holiday off, you know. And so we just started talking about quality of life versus money. And I was, I, I stood to make a lot of money in five years of drop. But then as I kind of looked at what, what Brian was doing and kind of the benefits, I approached Brian again. And I said, so what really would that look like? Uh, and he was like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah. I mean, Allie and I, so we talked a little bit more about it. And then I really felt um, prompted by God in my, in what I believe was God telling me to do this that we were supposed to pray for 30 days. So I told, I said, Brian, I'll, I'll let you know in February, this was January, the beginning of January, so January 1st, last year. Um, and so we prayed every day for 30 days and we would read, read a passage of scripture, journal, pray together. And uh, I think it was day 27. I remember my wife came downstairs and she was like, honey, but what if, what about insurance? And what if it's like a thousand dollars more a month we have to pay? And da, 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 da. And so I said, hey, let's let's just be faithful to this process. So we sat down and opened the Bible and it said, and behold, the Lord your God will take care of all of your needs in Christ Jesus. And that was like the time we kind of just laughed and we're like, got it. Um, and so we, through a long process, came to Brian and Liz and said, we'd really like to make this transition. Um, and so we started and it was a long kind of slow process. So I think Brian started talking to me two years prior about this opportunity. And so, um, yeah. When it was time, because I knew it was going to be in August is when we thought we'd make the transition. And I didn't want to be one of those guys who just dropped the ball at my deputy chief's door and said, by the way, I'm leaving next week because I could. But I I, gave, I think in uh, March, I made an appointment, sat down with him and uh, had that had that conversation. And he immediately walked me across the hallway to Chief Moore's office. I sat down with Chief Moore, who I'd known for many, many years and told him as well. Um, and he was he was mixed. He was like, well, can't say that I'm happy, but I get it. And uh, so I left with a very, um, very happy heart. I felt like I had a career that that um, many people never get to have. I had been impacted by so many people like you, um, like my partners, like it just, it had been an, an amazing career. And I felt like there was nothing left that I wanted to do. Um, and people were like, well, was it because of the last three years in law enforcement were hard? Yeah, they were hard. It was, it was, it was definitely not the world of law enforcement that I started with, where people were buying, wanted to buy you lunch after the North Hollywood shootout and after the fires. And it just became very, very different. But I still felt like I could have been an effective leader in that, but I felt like I was being really being called to do something else. Uh, and so it's been now started August 1st. 
So here I am five months down the road and it's just been an absolute blast. And I realize a lot of what I don't know. I'm learning so much about the private side. Wait, what's a profit? We have to, we actually have to turn a profit. I can't just go give me, give me a hundred officers at the corner of walk and don't walk in, in five minutes. Like that doesn't happen anymore, but I'm learning some amazing things. Uh, and I've got some amazing people that work with me and uh, that, that work for foresight that are, are brilliant and do amazing work and keep people safe, which I love. That's awesome. And let's, let's dig in a little bit to, uh, to your life now. And uh, certainly sure. jumped right into that COO slot over with, with Brian. And uh, Brian's been on the podcast. Goodness, he was one of the first uh, to join us. And he was talking about, you know, behavioral threat management and what he does. And yeah. um, But my understanding is that company is growing. Yes. And it's doing a lot more now. Yes. And so kind of talk about what your guys' focus is and, and, and what you guys do and, and how you manage. Sure. Now in a private sector hat, like I said, profit? What? You know? <laughs> yeah. You actually have to pay people. The government just doesn't do that. Come on. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, I, the reason I, I went with, you know, and felt Brian um, watching the way that he took care of his employees and watching the way his employees took care of their clients. Uh, to me, uh, I'm all about, you know, you take care of people. That's what we do. And if, if you know, if we in law enforcement, um, I always felt like we needed to just no matter who it was, we need to take care of him. I remember a guy sitting on the bench uh, in Foothill when I was a watch commander and he said, excuse me, sir, I have to go to the bathroom. And I looked around, there's there no cops available. So I went down, got his, un un unhooked his cuff, uh, the one cuff, and I took him to the bathroom and I had P1s and P3s running out of the door. What are you doing, boss? And I'm like, he said he had to take a leak. You guys were busy. I'm taking him to take a leak. Because if that was my brother or my sister or my aunt, and they pissed themselves on the bench because nobody took the time to take them. So to me, that was kind of like, you put that into the, into the into the private sector, and that's that's that same care for people is what I saw in Foresight. That's what they did, um, and so that's why I wanted to be a part of that organization. But I also wanted to be a part of an organization that I could impact the culture in, in a meaningful way. And I felt like I could impact the culture at LAPD, but it's huge, as you know. I mean, it's huge, uh, and unless you know the chief can impact at a, at a broad level, I was able to impact my world. Um, which I believe has ripple effects. So I'm not going to say you can't change your environment, but I was like, I want to do it at, at a different level. Uh, and so that's where I feel like as a growing company, I can set that foundation of this is who we are and build upon what Brian already built. So what we do at Foresight, we've got basically two segments. One is uh, security operations. Uh, in that, we do lots of intel. We do behavior threat assessment and management. We have security managers. So we actually have three clients in the Portland metro area um, and that we have a security manager. So they're embedded with a company, two media companies and one other private uh, manufacturing company. And they run all the security in that. And the media clients, they deal with a lot of stalking cases. They get people that are stalking their 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 weather people or their uh, weather, their news anchors. And some of these people are definitely harken back to my mental evaluation unit days because they have, um, you know, suffering from mental health crises. And so I've never seen a private company do what the threat management unit did in the LAPD, but that's what we do. We'll take a case in, we do a complete background on this person. We try to meet with all the, the, all the players, whether they're um, the parents or teachers or what, whatever it is. And we try to build a management plan around that person to keep them from doing violence. And I'm like, wait, there's people that actually do this in the private sector and do it really, really well. Like one of the last cases we did, I was honestly, I told my team, I said, TMU could learn something from you guys. And I love the guys at TMU. Like they're some of my best friends and they do an amazing job, but this was done completely on the private side. And it was unreal, the work they did. 
and they were able to actually get this person the help they needed and keep them from being, uh, they were actually in an attack mode. They almost had a very violent, potentially lethal attack on, on, um, on, a, on a client. And it was like, um, by doing what we did to manage that person and get them the help they needed, to me, that's that kind of care for your client, but also care for the, the subject that we're dealing with. Um, so we do that piece. Uh, Eric Tonsfeld is the director there, and he does an amazing job. But we also have our protective services division. Uh, and Matt Higgins, a former law enforcement as well, he runs our protective services. And so we do uh, protection of high net worth individuals, like a lot of the executive protection stuff that that I went, that last conference I went to. The, the stuff that I'm learning about that I knew police, we did, but it's very different on the, on the private side. So we have that as well. So when our clients travel overseas, we make sure we have trusted vendors that we use to make sure our clients are taken care of around the globe. When they're here, sometimes we'll travel and and take care of them as well, whether it's uh, executives doing a retreat, um, executives at a, you know, having a traveling event or when there's protests and they're directly impacted, we will make sure they're protected. So we do that piece as well. Uh, and we do lots of um, looking at corporations, looking at uh, healthcare industries, and we look at their policies, procedures. One of them is now in the state of California, they're doing, they, it's mandated that you have a workplace violence prevention program. We've been building those in the state of Oregon for our healthcare clients, for our private clients for a long time. So that's something we could just step into because we do that already. Um, we go in and do vulnerability assessments for businesses. We look at their, their structure, not only their building, physical building, but how they do things internally to make sure that they're um, resilient when it comes to potential attacks, potential threats uh, from all different angles. So there's just so much we do and so much I don't even understand yet um, that we're learning, but, but we're in a position, great position to expand um, and we work with a lot of incredible companies um, to help each other. A company will call and say, hey, we're, we're not out there in Portland. Could you guys do this for us? Absolutely. And we'll do the same thing. Hey, there's a client. They're out in Florida. Can, can we hand them off to you? So we do a lot of that. Like We're not taking profit for them. We're just saying, hey, this is a good, a good company over here. Use them. And so that's a lot of that, that networking that I think we they do and that, that Brian has modeled so well. Yeah. For anybody who knows the other Brian, Brian Flannery, huge networker. I mean, that's how I met him. Great guy. And, uh, yeah, but back to you. Um, when we met, I was jumping all over to conference to conference. You were embedded in what you were doing. Um, you were signing my secondary work authorization permits to be doing all this extra stuff. Yes. Um, and now, I mean, now you're the guy you're, you're going conference to conference. So I take a year off here getting ready to do all the wedding planning, but yes. <laughs> um, with that said, your first conference, was one of my first conferences yeah. in this vein, the IPSB conference in Dallas. And yeah. as you stepped over into the private sector, I remember, I don't know if they had it this year, but I, I mainly went my first year cause they had a shooting competition Yeah, and, uh, and then I enjoyed everything else. Right. And yeah. that conference was relatively small uh, at that point, but it has grown and yeah. you, uh, you went in and, and attended this year and uh, you did more than attended, you participated. So go ahead and, and tell us a little bit about this story and then uh, also recap this event for people like myself who weren't able to get out there this year. You got it. So um, yeah, soon, soon after I got on with Brian uh, and, and kind of started full-time with Foresight, he said, oh, by the way, we're doing a, a planning session of what the year looked like. He's, oh, by the way, Brian, um, you're speaking at a conference in Dallas in December. And I said, I am, am I? <laughs> he said, yes, uh, it's the Close Protection Conference. Uh, and I'm involved in uh, picking the speakers, and I think you it would be awesome to talk about how the public and private side interact in large scale events. And I said, oh, I have some experience with that. So 
Um, so that's how I kind of started. And I knew nothing about IPSB or the Close Protection Conference. And uh, so I was excited to go. And so I put together uh, a presentation based on, you know, obviously my time dealing with Hollywood and dealing with um, the guys who I said that in the tuxedos who I didn't know who they were and they were executive protection specialists and private security specialists and and how oftentimes there was headbutting between um, the cops and the private security, which I thought was funny because as I realized, most of them were off-duty cops, which always made me laugh. Um, but so I kind of took a tongue-in-cheek look at it for my presentation uh, and basically talked about how we all have perceptions of each other, but we can work better together. And I walked them through some missteps that I saw when I was with the LAPD of how we didn't do a good enough job on the law enforcement side of gathering the people that were important, the EP professionals, bring them in during the planning process. Because that's, they, we show up on the day of and go, okay, who are you and what do you do? No, they need to be involved in the outset so we can do a much more um, thorough job of protecting the event and the people and the brand. Um, so uh, a lot of learning that I had to do to, to get that done. But I just, I, and I realized some people go up there and they just want to give facts. And I'm, I'm kind of not that way. So I, I had a clip from South Park. I had a clip from uh, Ted Lasso, you know, and, and had some fun. I had a game show in the middle of it where I was bringing people up and they had to give me their top five pet peeves that that uh, private industry specialists have for cops and what the top five pet peeves that cops have about, you know, rent-a-cops, as I called them. So and we had a lot of fun, tongue in cheek, but kind of tried to break down some of the barriers. They're like, <laughs> look, we're all doing the same job. And um, one of the things I kept hearing over and over again at that conference and what the conference was, it was about 600 people. Um, all from many, many executive protection firms from all over the world. I, I met folks from Sweden and from Germany and England, uh, had a fantastic time. Uh, the keynote this year was Rex Tillerson, who was the former secretary of state under Donald Trump. And talk about just a down to earth guy who talked about leadership starting from his time in the, in the Boy Scouts. Like he shared a lot about just that's his leadership style. And it was fascinating to have him sit, he was sitting on a chair being interviewed. And I felt like what a privilege it was to hear somebody who had gone from, you know, those humble beginnings to being chairman of one of the largest oil companies in the world and secretary of state where he was dealing with how to prevent freaking World War III um, every day. And then to find out that I was going on the stage immediately after him. And, um, and, and, I, and that was, it was just a lot of fun though, but to meet the people that are in that world and, and the word that I learned was protector. And, you know, I, I'd never heard that term before because I hadn't been in those circles um, that people who are in that close protection space, executive protection space are considered protectors. And I thought, dude, that's just exactly the same thing we did in, in law enforcement. You still do. You're a protector. And when you go out there in that black and white and when you're, it's, it's slightly different, but I've realized we're, we're very similar. And I felt an immediate kinship. There, again, there was a lot of former law enforcement, but a lot not. I mean, some of them were, were former military, never law enforcement. Like uh, one of my senior managers, Landon, he was never in law enforcement. He was in the military. And then he, he worked um, on the private side in, in doing some contracting work overseas, but but never law enforcement. But there's an immediate kinship there on uh, brotherhood and sisterhood um, that I thought was pretty, pretty amazing. And just to hear, um, again, some of the speakers talk about the how-tos of of executive protection, which again, I'm still learning. I mean, a lot of it is is just like we did in, in law enforcement. And I had to work, you know, the executive protection unit in Metropolitan Division, which I forgot to mention, also handles um the close protection of the mayor of Los Angeles, the chief of police, and um the um city attorney. And so a lot of very similar things, 
but the private side is just different than the government side, but a lot of those principles are the same. So amazing people, uh, you know, the, the best parts of that conference were after the conference, grabbing an old fashioned, sitting with somebody, listening to their story, um, and just kind of realizing that there, there's a lot of, a lot more similarities than differences in, in our industry. Yeah. Like I said, uh, it's, uh, it's mindset and it's principles that draw all these people together, whether it was law enforcement, the military, or anywhere else. I mean, the, the road in is many, um, but it really takes a certain type of person yeah. to want to be a protector. Sure. And, uh, and you work with them over at your company and you've interacted with well, probably like 600 of them. Cause I know you're a social guy over at the conference. So, um, <laughs> um, with that, for people who haven't made that jump, you know, specifically those in law enforcement or the military sure. or for somebody that's just looking for something different. Right. Um, what message do you have for those guys working in the public sector as they look to the private for this transitional work? Um, find people you trust. And that's, that's, that's it. That's pretty, that's, that's the, it. cause if I, if I trust who I'm working with, we can work through problems. If you don't trust that person, you're kind of like, eh, I don't know. Like, don't go for the glitz and glamour of things because it's a lot, a lot out there. There's a lot, there's a lot of money in the private side. Like I look at some of these things, I'm like, oh my gosh, like the dinners these people have and the money they throw out there. I mean, it's nothing compared to the International Association of Chiefs of Police Conference, which, <laughs> um, but you know, there is a lot of glitz and glamour that can be, you can be sold. Make sure you're not being sold. Make sure you're doing things for the right reasons. Um, people that, that have integrity in this business, that's, that's who you want to work with and work for. And if they don't have that, it's not worth it. No amount of money is worth selling your soul. And, um, you know, for me, I, I took a pay cut. It was because I knew that the people that I'm working with are people of integrity and that's okay. Um, the stress level is definitely diminished from what I had. So I would say for those looking at it, know why, what is your why? Is your why just to make more money? Eh, you probably need to rethink that. If your why is because you want to expand your your growth or you're you're really an entrepreneur and you want to build something from the ground up, but know your why. So if you know your why, then everything else is, is much easier. You ask the right questions. Okay. So my why is, you know, that I want to help a company grow and want to influence the culture from the ground up. That 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 kind of frames what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and how I'm doing it. And so I think if people know those things, it makes that transition much easier. And then have a system. A lot of people will just suddenly leave law enforcement because they get pissed off because, um, you know, they got something thrown at them during a protest during the George Floyd, the summer of George Floyd, whatever it was that instantly changes your mindset. You're like, well, I'm going to go do something else. Well, the grass is not always greener. I mean, I have plenty of people who left after the Rampart scandal, left the LAPD only to come back because <laughs> they realized they got to a small agency or somewhere else and they left for the wrong reasons. So I think that is to me the biggest. You understand your why, be very thoughtful about it. And if you've got people in your life that are like for me, it was my wife, my family, like don't make these decisions in a vacuum. Like spend time, work through it. Like my wife and I have talked about what we have great insurance and I have a great retirement and all this stuff. Like that's going away. And what does that look like? And how do we then um are we going to be okay with that? So make sure you kind of go in with eyes wide open. Uh, and, uh, if you do that, then I have, I have no regrets. It's funny. Flannery said, um, when I first started in August, he goes, Brian, just, I just want you to prepare yourself. Cause right about in January, you're going to start to miss it and want to go back. And it, and it's, you know, you're going to miss all of that. And I'm like, and so I talked to him this month. I'm like, it hasn't happened yet. I love my, I love my law enforcement brothers and sisters. And I like 
looking at what they're doing and talking to them. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to have lunch with Steve Lurie this week um, just to hang out and talk. But I don't regret it because I think I made that decision. I knew the why and I knew, again, eyes wide open. Have there been things that haven't gone the way I thought they would? Absolutely. Um, Have there been things that I I didn't think about? Like, oh, I never thought about that before. Um, Great. But I feel like I've grown as a leader Um, because to try and like, when I can walk up to you in a, in, a, in a roll call room, put my hand on your back and say, hey, thank you for doing such an amazing job today. It's harder to do when your employees are, you know, 1500 miles away. And so that piece to me is like being on Zoom and, and doing leadership from afar is 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 challenging me. Um, and I've been challenged by my employees to, to be a better leader. And so that to me, those are some of the things I didn't really fully understand. Um, but again, I think it's it's. My wife said, I have, I have more time now and more space in our home. Like if I need to just go do a chore, it's not like, oh, but I got to run down to the station or there's a SWAT call out. Like it's, it's much different. Um, and so I think it, it's totally worth it. And I have no regrets. You know, that's all great insight. And, and uh, we're going to save possibly the best question for last, because as much of a professional as you are, you're also a huge family man. Uh. And that was evident during your retirement ceremony. And uh, your family was there, extended family was, I mean, it was just, it was one of those things where this is a guy who was able to prioritize mm. two challenging and often competing components of life. Yeah. And uh, so as we wrap it up, what kind of messages do you have for the guys that are moving through a, a uh, an incredible career, Yeah. but worried about, is this going to leave my life at home behind? Yeah. Um, there are those times where you will have to leave your family and 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 go to work because that's the that's the job we signed up for. Um, but always remember, you you signed up for it. They didn't a lot of times. Um, and so balancing that is not easy. But when you carve out that time for family, make sure you carve it out. Um, I always took my vacation. I know a lot of cops don't. They bank it. They work off duty. Um, and to me, that is that is you're never going to have enough money. Um, so carve out that time. When I went on vacation, even as a captain and people thought I was nuts, I took my work phone, I turned it off and I put it in that drawer over there and said, you have my private number. And I would go on my family vacations and and be present with my family. And I don't think we do that enough in our profession. I think we want to, we want to work off duty. We want to keep in contact with what's going on. And there is that, but our family feels it. Our family feels it. They know that they're not the priority. And I wasn't perfect at it. Believe me, there was times in my career that that didn't happen. I remember after 9-11, I remember coming home, looking at my daughter in her bed and realizing I hadn't seen her in a week. I hadn't seen her in a week awake. And because I was working so much. uh, And then I I made a decision, like, I'm not going to work off duty anymore. And I stopped working off duty. And never have again have I worked off duty. Um, Because I told my wife, I said, we need to sit down and we're going to do a P3 salary with no overtime. And it was hard, hard. Um, we did without a lot. I, I saw these cops like they had motorcycles and boats and they're going on these amazing trips. And I'm like, yeah, we're not. Um, but I still have my family. I'm, you know, 54 years old, retired from the LAPD. Um, I still have the same wife I, I started with, um, you know, the same woman I've been dating since I was 16 years old, which I, again, is unique. Um, but my daughter calls two, three times a day. My son just graduated from college. He's here with us and he actually still likes us, I think. Um, But I think those investments are so worth it. 
uh, and it and, and it pays off in the end. I'm I'm doing things now that that I wasn't able to do when I was raising a family, just financially. But now I'm able to. Um, but I was able to invest in my family, and um, again, still, still, I think have a, have a thriving family. And my wife and I've been married for 30 years, and there's going to be at least 30 more, um, God willing. But I think that's it. I think you need to when you carve out time for your family, carve it out. That job will always be there. And, and we always think, oh my gosh, they, they can't do it without me. That was my savior complex. They can't do it without me. Oh my gosh, what, what happens when I'm on vacation? I'm like, guess what? Yeah, they can. Because if you build in people the ability to do their jobs and lead well and invest in them enough when you're there, then when you're not there, they have what it what it takes to carry on. And you can invest in your family. So that's that's where I'll leave it for now. Well, and I think that's a perfect place to leave it. I don't know where better words of wisdom are going to come from. Um, we're out of right there. Um, I got to say, it's a pleasure to have you on um, as somebody who's been a boss, a friend, a mentor, extended family member. I mean, you're you're everything to a lot of people, not just me. Yeah. Um, so it's a pleasure to have you on here, tell your story, share what you're doing now, and uh, provide some information for those who are following behind you. And it's uh, it's always great. So thank you again for spending your time with us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Ron. And uh, you keep on doing the good work out there and uh, looking forward to more times together. All right. Well, until I see you again, you stay safe. And to everybody listening today, stay safe.